Welcome to Going Deep, sports in the 21st century on Blue Ridge Public Radio. I'm Dr. Marsha Mount Shoup. And I'm Coach John Shoup. John's coached at the highest levels of the game of football for 26 years. And Marsha is an author, theologian, and minister. And we're glad you've joined us to go deep into some of the most pressing issues of our time. On Going Deep, we go beyond the sound bites and highlight reels. Our guest today is David Wallachinsky, one of the founding members of the International Society of Olympic Historians. Mr. Wallachinsky served eight years as treasurer of the ISOH, eight years as vice president before being elected president in 2012. All Olympic fans have either seen, heard, or read the work of David Wallachinsky. In the early 80s, he published The Complete Book of the Olympics, which has become the world's go-to reference book for all things Olympics. From stats and analysis to some of the most compelling stories in the world of sports. Today, David is joining us from southern France. And we are excited to have you here, David. Welcome to Going Deep. I was wondering if we could start. um, The first thing we wanted to talk about is kind of the modern Olympics really reconvened in 1896 in the Mm -hmm. ancient Olympics really halted in 391 AD. And so there's a long period of time. What's the difference between the ancient? There's so many differences, but can you talk a little bit about the modern Olympics that we know today versus the ancient Olympics back in Greece? Well, we know that uh, the ancient Olympics Uh, go back to at least uh, 776 BC. It's quite possible that they started before that. We haven't found the records yet. Um, The ancient Olympics were part of a religious festival. It wasn't just athletics. Uh, So there was, you know, art, music, dance, and so forth. There's a myth that there was a truce during the ancient Olympics. This is not true. Um, What they did do for much of the history of the ancient Olympics was that there was a right of free passage. If there was a war going on, the warring sides would stop to allow participants in the Olympics to pass through. As soon as they pass through, they'd start fighting again. (laughs) Hmm. And and, uh, so there wasn't really an Olympic truce. Um, The events were very simple. There was a one stadium run which was 191 meters. You can go there now to Olympia and you can run that same course as they did thousands of years ago. Um, Eventually it kind of got corrupted. There were more events, there were combat events. There was chariot racing as if you've ever seen the film Ben-Hur or read the novel. Uh, um, And uh, then when you got to the fourth century AD, Emperor Theodosius uh, felt that they were pagan and he, He canceled them and other similar religious gatherings. Um, In the 19th century, there were various people who thought we should do this modern version. 
Um, but the one who had the organizational skills and the money was Baron Pierre de Coubertin of France. And he gathered together people from different countries. Um, he proposed uh, that there be a modern Olympics in Athens, Greece, in 1896, this was accepted. The Greeks thought it was a great idea. And the first Olympics were held. There were no official teams. You could show up as some people just did. There were no national teams, no qualifying. There was a qualifying race for the uh, Greek marathon, the Greeks in the marathon, uh, which by the way, was not in the ancient Olympics that was created for the 1896 Olympics. And it was the, the first heat, which was a hundred you know, meter heat, was won by an American. The first championship was James Connolly, an American, who won the uh, triple jump. Uh, these people just showed up, you know. And, um, but the big event was that the marathon, which somehow, even though it had no history, was the big event, was won by a Greek, Spiridon Luis. And this caused the sensation he, you know, he never had to buy a drink for the rest of his life. <laughs> and uh, in fact, in 1936, when, when the Nazis held their Olympics, they tracked him down. He was still living in the village and they, they brought him to Berlin to try to make the connection with ancient, with, mm. with the earliest Olympics. Oh, that's fantastic. How did they come about deciding what events were going to be in 1896. Was that the Frenchman who just decided these are the events? He made the suggestions and then the Greek organizers uh, added some events, you know, like uh, uh, certain events only for Greek sailors, <laughs> things like uh -huh. that. And uh, they were not open. And, um, you know, Baron de Coubertin, you know, he made the suggestions. There were others who you know, took part, but it was, it was pretty haphazard. And certainly the tennis tournament, uh, people showed up. They didn't have to be from, a doubles team didn't have to be from the same country. Mm -hmm. you know. So <laughs> it's much more informal. So I'm wondering, like, if you compare the early, the, the ancient Olympics and the modern Olympics, like what values gave rise to, to the, you know, the investment of time and resources well, and i know in ancient greece you know sport was really about the the human body being able to achieve amazing things and mm -hmm. um the celebration of um human excellence really uh, you know i know it sounds like there were some civic things to it some religious things to it that was somehow about it must have somehow propped up the the cultural norms that they wanted to see in their society. Uh, Baron de Coubertin uh, was impressed by some of the uh, uh, values of the ancient Olympics. For example, he did believe that this idea of uh, physical excellence was important. He didn't care that much about winning. You may have heard his famous statement. Uh, it's not whether you win or lose, but how you play the game. And uh, uh, he believed in participation and in uh, improving yourself physically. He also, uh, Baron de Coubertin, uh, in having you know, created the modern Olympic, believed in this, the inclusion of art. And so there were, in fact, art competitions in the early Olympics. Um, 
not in 1896, but soon thereafter. What kind of art competitions is in, in painting and painting, sculpture, architecture, literature, poems, and so forth. Uh, so he did believe in that, but it, it, you know, that's the Olympics has always had a problem with judged events. And when it comes to art, you're really running into a problem. Right. <laughs> Was there this kind of impulse to global community that's so much a big part of how we talk about it now? Or was it just like, whoever shows up, um, we want to see what you can do. Not so much about the world coming together for fair competition. Baron de Coubertin, he wanted to make the games international. Uh, He really did, except he didn't want women in the Olympics. Mm. Mm-hmm. He was opposed to that and felt that they, they didn't belong in, in sporting activities. Um, he was eventually overruled by other members of the International Olympic Committee. And in fact, the very second Olympics in 1900, which were held in Paris, uh, there were some women, you know, in sailing, uh, golf, you know, okay. and, you know, and, and um, tennis. Um, but, you know, in terms of other countries, yes, he, he definitely wanted other countries to take part. At the same time, you had um, people had to pay their own way. Right. And, you know, you couldn't just get on an airplane. You know, it, it was pretty difficult. And traveling from the United States or South America to Europe was a big deal. It was a commitment. So that was limiting. That was certainly uh, limiting who could who could take part. So one more one more question on this before we get into our our second question about athletes when they return home. When would you say in the trajectory of the history of the modern Olympics did it become this huge financial behemoth? Well, okay, there were various stages in this. Um, first of all, the the Olympics became an international event because of a dramatic ending to the 1908 marathon. Uh, and, and that had people pay attention. The 1924 Olympics, which were held in Paris, were the first ones to have um, major media coverage. Of course, media coverage then was, you know, uh, newspapers. You know. Um, and then, uh, you know, the famous 1936 Berlin Olympics, where the Hitler and the Nazi government tried to make a big deal out of it. Um, and then you started to get, once you had television, um, there had been, there was in fact a closed circuit, well, a public TV in 1936 where they showed them in squares, uh, you know, public squares. Hmm. But you know, once you started having TV rights in, uh, you know, 1960, um, that changed everything. And then lo and behold, uh, when people realized well, you're going to get a much bigger audience on television. I mean, look now, even without COVID, 98% or more of the people who follow the Olympics do it on television or online. So, you know, we've completely, very few people, even in the best of times, actually show up at the Olympics.
on to our next segment, many athletes in general. And, and David, I used to be a professional football coach in the NFL for a long time. That I know. Once, <laughs> once they're done playing their sport, well, they just kind of are forgotten about. And I was wondering if you could tell us, you have some amazing stories, but it's about some of the athletes that when they're done competing in the Olympics, representing their country, being held up on the pedestal of pedestals, when they get back home, well, son of a gun, they're not always treated as we'd hope. Well, first of all, before answering your question, uh, a little background. The Tokyo Olympics, you're going to get like 11,000 athletes. The vast number of those athletes won't be covered. And in fact, in terms of the United States, you're going to see a lot of coverage of swimming, gymnastics, and track and field, because that's what Americans are good at. But if you're, even if you're an American and, you know, your sport is canoeing or taekwondo or almost any other sport, the dozens of sports that are in the Olympics, nobody pays attention to you except every four years. And that's why for those sports, the Olympics is so much more important because it's the only exposure they get. And also, I would say that probably 80% of the athletes from around the world who are going to the Olympics know that they have zero chance of winning a medal. They just want to do the best they can and see, you know, meet other people. You know, and they want, you know, just if I can set a personal record, I've done it. You know, so that's the background. We hear about those athletes who get a lot of coverage, but most of them, as you said, don't. But even those famous athletes, to go back in the early days, uh, the hero of the 1912 Olympics was a man named Jim Thorpe, who was part Native American, part Irish, Sac and Fox Indian. And he was an unbelievable athlete. Um, he went to the Carlisle Indian School, uh, you know, defeated, uh, you know, the Air Force, uh, you know, they de- defeated the military teams. Uh, he played against Dwight Eisenhower, Jim Thorpe, you know, uh, and uh, he went to the Olympics in Stockholm in 1912. He won the decathlon, 10 events, and he also won an event which is no longer in the Olympics called the pentathlon, five events. When it came time to give the medals, Uh, the king of Sweden said to him, sir, you are the greatest athlete in the world. And Jim Thorpe was alleged to have said, thanks, king. (laughs) (laughs) I actually tracked down a video of this moment, but it was silent. It's 1912. And so I couldn't tell if he really said that. But uh, it's a great story anyway. And I should mention that, um, well, what happened to, to Jim Thorpe was he went back to the United States and somebody revealed the fact that that summer he had played semi-professional baseball. The American Athletic Union, the AAU, demanded that his medals be taken away, which they were. And the athletes who moved up refused to accept their medals because they said he, is, he was the hmm. winner. And, you know, um, when I was a little boy, my father told me about Jim Thorpe because when my father, Irvin Wallace, he was a struggling freelance writer in Los Angeles. 
and he tracked down Jim Thorpe. He and my father got Jim Thorpe to uh, write some articles. He ghost wrote articles. And I can remember as a little boy, my father showing me these letters he had from Jim Thorpe. And, you know, you know, Jim Thorpe, he, you know, he, he's, when he came back before it was revealed that he played semi-professional baseball, there were ticker tape parades for him, you know, and he said, I couldn't believe that so many people know who I was. He, he lived in a different world, but he lost his medals. It was all over. He went on and he, he was, if not the first, one of the first athletes to play both professional baseball and professional football. But when my father tracked him down, you know, he was just, he was forgotten. And then in the 50s, they made a film about him starring Burt Lancaster, the Jim Thorpe story. Of course, Jim Thorpe didn't get anything, you know, but a few bucks. That was it. So it didn't work out so well, you know, for Jim Thorpe. Um, I guess the most famous athlete of the early period was Jesse Owens. Jesse Owens had five world records in 45 minutes. And then he went to the Olympics. The Nazis, this was 1936, their propaganda newspaper criticized the United States, saying, oh, the Americans, they can't even compete without their black auxiliaries. Wow. But he went there. He ended up winning the 100 meters, the 200 meters, the relay, and the long jump. To the, despite the Nazi propaganda, this is very interesting, despite the Nazi propaganda, the German people considered him the hero of the Olympics. They didn't care what color he was, where he came from. And they would knock on his window in the Olympic Village. There was no security back then. Can we have your autograph? Can we have your autograph? And there was a, a famous moment where in the long jump, his rival was an Aryan German named Luz Long. And Liz Long, uh, you know, Jesse Owens, he, he messed up his first two jumps in the qualifying round. And Liz Long went up to him and said, you're so good. Why don't you just take off before the board <laughs> you know, and you'll qualify, which is what happened. And, you know, the day of the final, which Jesse Owens won, uh, Liz Long made a point of being photographed in the stadium with Jesse Owens, which was a powerful statement considering what the Nazi propaganda was. Of course, Jesse Owens came back and uh, hero though he was, he was still African-American. When the Amateur Athletic Union, the AAU, went to choose their athlete of the year, they chose somebody else. And Jesse Owens, you know, he struggled to make a living. He ran against horses. And eventually, as the decades went by, he found his place as I would call it a professional good example. He gave motivational speeches. Mm. Um, unfortunately, he was addicted to tobacco and he died of lung cancer. You're listening to Going Deep, and our guest today is David Walachinsky, Olympic historian. Welcome back to Going Deep, where our guest is David Walachinsky, author of The Complete Book of the Olympics and one of the world's leading Olympic historians. I will say one thing since you've asked about the problem of athletes coming back, mm-hmm. which is to their credit, the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee has a program 
to help ex-athletes reintegrate into society. And I've certainly talked to athletes who, you know, they spent their whole life, uh, uh, you know, in sport, and then their career is over. They don't know what to do. Right. You know, I remember talking to one snowboarder, and she had become a snowboarder very early, very young. She'd been in the Olympics and so forth. And uh, all she did was train. When summer came, when most people would go on vacation, she and the other snowboarders would go to the Southern Hemisphere and continue training. I, I remember arriving in Athens with her. We were on the same plane. And she was like, son, son. Mm. Wow. <laughs> he just didn't have that background. And she didn't know what she was going to do. And, you know, I introduced her to coincidentally at this meeting I was at. There was the woman who was in charge of the program to, to help athletes you know, reintegrate into society. So, you know, good for the U.S. Olympic Committee that they do that. Yeah. I mean, that's a really common experience for professional athletes, you know, when, when they're sporting or even collegiate athletes, because for most collegiate athletes, they're not going to be professionals. Right. And they just, they just are. And I felt like that after college, just what am, who am I without my sport? Who am I when I'm not training and being coached and pushing for something? And with the Olympics, it's so singular, you know, it's like, I mean, some, some people are in multiple Olympics, but that is certainly. An as, as a matter of fact, 73% in, since the beginning of the Olymp modern Olympics in 1896, 73% of athletes have competed in only one Olympics. Wow. How about that? So, so it really is this yeah, one right. time thing that you just, you build up and it would be really tough to kind of adjust after that. So what about the, there's another kind of iconic story about the Mexico city Olympics when, you know, Tommy Smith raised his, his fist to the black power symbol. Can you tell us a little bit about that? There was a, a lot of political involvement in 1968 all over the world all over the world, not just in the United States. And in fact, in the days leading up to the Olympics in Mexico City, the you know, Mexican military gunned down about 200 people who were unarmed during the protest. And then, you know, uh, Tommy Smith won the gold medal at 200 meters, uh, John Carlos, the bronze medal. And when they got on the um, a victory platform for the medal ceremony, they raised their black gloves on the black power salute. They wore uh, socks, rolled up socks to demonstrate poverty. And they bowed their heads during the playing of the uh, U.S. national anthem. The U.S. Olympic Committee, I mean, the, uh, the International Olympic Committee, which was run by an American, Avery Brundage, uh, who had ignored the massacre of 200 people a few days earlier, said to the U.S. Olympic Committee, you, you get these people out of Mexico, period, Smith and Carlos, because they were supposed to be in the relay. And at first, the U.S. Olympic Committee resisted. Wait a minute. You know, and then they went, no, if you don't get rid of them, no athlete, no American athletes are competing in the rest of the Olympics. And so Smith and Carlos were forced to go back. And they had a very hard time. They were, you know, criticized. And later they became heroes, but not at first. And I personally remember, um, you know, being in uh, Santa Monica, California, and uh, my wife and I, oh, you know, we're just not getting enough exercise. 
And uh, we signed up for a co-ed soccer class. And the coach was Tommy Smith. You know, I ran into Tommy Smith years later. And I said, you were my soccer coach. And, and he said, can you tell my wife she doesn't believe I ever did something like that? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, he was a nice guy. And uh, it was just really hard for Smith and Carlos. Later, yes. they became, you know, icons of uh, social justice. But for you know, the first 20 years after they did what they did. I think of Colin Kaepernick and, you know, just... It, it has a cost. It really does have a cost um, yeah. when you take a stand like that. Um, yeah. You know, another hot topic or another topic that's really prevalent now is transgender athletes. As you have said, this is an issue that probably went back a lot further than uh, people realize. And we'll get into it up here, but can you tell just an amazing story of a competitor in the 32 and 36 Olympics, Stella Walsh. Stella Walsh uh, was a Polish American and she wanted to compete for the United States, but the rules of amateurism back in the 1930s were so harsh. The U S Olympic committee said she couldn't represent them because she was a, a playground director and thus she was a professional athlete. Wow. She was a playground director. But no, okay. So finally, you know, the Poles went, we'll take her. <laughs> and, you know, they gave her back her Polish name. And uh, she won the 100 meters. Um, she would never be in the training room with the other women. And it was thought that she was a snob. So then 1936, the Olympics are in Berlin. And uh, she, she's up against this American woman, Helen Stevens, who was a farm girl. Adolf Hitler tried to pick her up. He loved her. You know, she was big, Aryan looking, even if she wasn't American, made, made a pass at her. Anyway, uh, Helen Stevens defeated Stella Walsh. And the Poles were furious. They demanded that um, uh, Helen that Helen Stevens submit to a um, sex examination, a, you know, sex a genital examination by the Germans who, who went ahead and did it. And sure enough, she was a woman. Nobody checked Stella Walsh. And many years later, Stella Walsh was shot to death in Cleveland. She just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. She was in a parking, walking to her car in a parking lot, and there was a shootout you know, uh, between some, you know, criminals and, and the police. And she happened to step in between and she was shot to death. The autopsy uh, turned out that she had both sexual organs. That all the time they were checking Helen Stevens, it was Stella Walsh who had male genitals and female. She was what's known as a gonandomorph. You know, this was startling but at the 1936 olympics there was another case which was dora ratchen who uh represented germany in the high jump it turned out that dora was really a man and she too had mixed gender 
uh, characteristics. And the, the German Olympic Committee had ordered her to pretend that she was a woman, completely a woman. There was no gender testing back then. You know, in the early days, there, it just didn't come up. And it didn't come up until there was gender testing in the 1960s. And uh, there was a Polish athlete, Iwa Klobokowska, uh, who uh, failed the, she was the first person to fail a gender test. Well, Iwa Klobokowska was a woman, but she had a very high testosterone level. So this is an issue that has been going on for a long time. Um, and the International Olympic Committee has finally coming to terms with it so that now in these Olympics in Tokyo, we're going to see the first transgender athlete who is a weightlifter from New Zealand who qualified with the support of the internet, the new rules of the International Olympic Committee. The kind of contemporary conversation around gender transition and gender identity is, is very different than these early conversations, it seems to me, which were the whole gender binary is complicated and there are people who don't fit in either or spot. And that's, that's different than an identity question. That's a biological reality. And, and so when so much rides on this binary being the way we divide up athletes, it presents all kinds of, of problems when, you know, somebody doesn't fit in either category that just feels really different than somebody who did not have an ambiguous kind of biological gender identity, but, Mm -hmm. or biological sex, but did, but does feel more at home in a different gender identity. And then so does by, you know, medical surgical procedures to transition their body to fit their identity. That seems like a whole different, conversation yeah but and and but with either of them the mm-hmm. people who are just born with you know mixed uh, uh genes or people who transition uh the ioc finally came to terms with it by creating a a a testosterone uh ratio hmm. which okay is like triple quadruple the normal woman they they made it as, what they thought was as liberal as possible Okay. And so in the case of Castor Semenya, uh, South Africa, who, who is the most high profile uh, mixed uh, uh, biological person, you know, athlete. And she they, was in 2012, 2016, much more 16. recent. Yes. Yeah. And so they find, you know, they, you have to look at it also from the athletes who are competing against her. Mm-hmm. This is a woman with a very high testosterone level. And, you know, what are, what are these other women who are competing against are supposed to do? If they take testosterone injections, you know, then that's illegal. On right. the other hand, she was born that way, uh, just like some people are born seven feet tall and can play basketball and some right. of us are not so tall. <laughs> right. Uh, right. And so, you know, what do you do about a situation like that? So the, IOS, the Court of Arbitration for Sport, which is the final a judicial uh, uh, body that makes these decisions, they ruled that her testosterone level was illegal for certain distances, but not for others. That they had studied if you ran, if you ran 200, 400 meters, it really helped you. But if you ran the 1500, not so much, you know, like that, 5,000. Interesting.
Well, I read about in the 60 Olympics where you said they started testing. I think it was in Rome. They used to have what I'll quote nude parades and they would test the athletes and give them a certificate of femininity if yeah. they qualified as female. Holy moly. <laughs> but here's the thing, you know, Eva Klabakowska passed, but her hormone level was too high. She'd been raised a woman. You know, she was a woman. You know, Stella Walsh was raised as a, as a little girl, too. It is very complicated, which is why binaries are a problem. And <laughs> the biological reality of all things is that there's all kinds of gray areas. So that's really interesting, though, that how the different iterations of enforcement have mm-hmm. manifested themselves. Um, I did an interview. One of my favorite uh, participations in the Olympic movement is that, uh, except for this COVID year, um, I conduct extended video interviews with Olympic athletes who are now older than 80. And so on. I mean, I feel blessed that I, I've been able to do this. And I interviewed for about three and a half hours in Sweden, a man named Arnold Lundqvist, Lundqvist who was for decades the head uh, medical officer. He's now a member of the I, uh, International Olympic Committee. And I asked him, I gave him the whole history of all this and asked him, And it was clear that for so long, for decades, the IOC, their their reaction was, can we not deal with this? (laughs) It was so complicated. Right. And it's some sports, you know, maybe you could just kind of get away with not looking at it. I don't know. But, you know, in a sport like track and field or swimming, there is a big difference between men's times and women's times. I mean, that, that gap is getting less. But it's still significant. But it's still there, and it's still significant. Absolutely. Could you talk to us a little bit just also about the bidding process and why would, (laughs) you know, the cost-benefit analysis of a city hosting the Olympics? Well, first of all, let me say that for quite a long time, whenever I've been interviewed by uh, uh, media from host city, you know, we've got the Olympics, you know, what do you have to say? I always tell them it's going to cost way more than you think it is, and you're going to lose money. You know, they they say, well, what about the legacy of the Olympics? And I I always tell them legacy, debt. (laughs) Mm. (laughs) That's going to be it. That's your legacy. That's your legacy. And so the International Olympic Committee is now trying to deal with this in a new way, which was they, they got two good bids for the 24 Olympics, which was Paris and Los Angeles, two very sophisticated cities, both of which uh, were happy to hold the Olympics and uh, have most of their venues in place. <laughs> so the IOC went, wait a minute, let's give you both the Olympics. And we won't have a bid for 28. Paris, you get 24. Uh, you know, Los Angeles, you get 28. Now, the, the International Olympic Committee made it very clear that they want the, 19, the 2032 Summer Olympics to go to Brisbane, Australia. And they don't want this bidding. They don't want this fighting. They want another country that's safe, uh, uh, not just safe, but financially 
you know, can, can pull this off and is extremely enthusiastic, Australia, about the Olympics. So that's why um, they're, they're changing the way they're dealing with it. The problem that the International Olympic Committee is facing is the Winter Olympics, because it's very difficult to reuse the venues again. I mean, how often do you need a luge track after the Olympics? So that's something they're still in turmoil about. Um, why would a city want it? Because it's good for the prestige of the city. It's fun. <laughs> we forget that. The International Olympic Committee got burned in some of the more recent Olympics. Uh, the Rio Olympics, they chose Rio. I was, I was there when the presentations were made. And Rio made a great presentation. They made a map. Here's where the they like. Here's where the different Olympics have been held. Do you see a black area? Yeah, it's South America and Africa, and except for Australia, the entire Southern Hemisphere. And our economy is in good shape, which it was at that time. At that time, but what went wrong with the Rio Olympics was corruption. I'm sorry, but I watched this happen. I experienced it in person. That money that went to the Olympics went into people's pockets. It didn't go to help poor neighborhoods. It didn't help uh, go to build the, the, the venues. It was completely corrupt. That was, and it was really unfair to the Brazilian people who were wonderful, wonderful hosts. But the money was just, it was total corruption. Um, and that was sad. And it's often the case, I'm sorry to say. You're listening to Going Deep, and our guest is David Wallachinsky, Olympic historian. Welcome back to Going Deep, where we'll continue our conversation with David Wallachinsky, an Olympic historian and author of the complete book of the Olympics. Would you say that is more of a, you know, 20th, 21st century phenomenon that people see the Olympics as a chance to pocket some cash and make it look like it's great for the city or yes it's a, at the in the early days nobody thought about <clears throat> whether a city was going to make money it just didn't come up you know and everything was going to bootstrap anyway then the 1984 olympics which were held in los angeles turned to profit and all of a sudden around the world people went profit can we join as soon as the big money came in there was profiteering and corruption became a big deal, big deal. Right. The Athens Olympics 2004 was totally, absolutely corrupt. Sochi, outrageous. The Winter Olympics in Russia. Oh, Vladimir mm -hmm. Putin gave all the contracts to his buddies. It was very simple, you know, very simple. So is that where the money all is, like the contracts or is it endorsements? Is it like corporations um, paying well, the, the, for commercial time and things like that for the revenue of the international Olympic committee by far the biggest source is television rights in particularly nbc they pay the most but also the european broadcasting union uh, you know even if the the olympics weren't in japan they would pay big money and so you know more than 70 percent of the revenue comes from broadcast rights and then the international Olympic committee has um what they call top sponsors the olympic program 
then these are corporations that join permanently, no matter where the Olympics are. Then the organizing committee, in this case, Tokyo, the next Winter Olympics in Beijing, they can get local sponsors. And that's big money also. Um, selling tickets, not bad. Uh, other things, but the broadcast rights are, are the biggest source of revenue. Well, let's transition then into Tokyo. I mean, these Olympics are unlike any Olympics that we've seen before. We have seen Olympics that have been canceled, am I right, during World War One And uh, World War II. In World War II, but we haven't seen Olympics that have been postponed a year. And we're right in the middle of COVID and 3% of the citizens in Japan are vaccinated against COVID. Fully Uh, vaccinated, yeah. Fully vaccinated. Could you talk a little bit about the dynamic around these Olympics and specifically the city of Tokyo and, well, all the issues that they're having to deal with? Well, first of all, when Tokyo won the Olympics, you could not find a more enthusiastic group of people than the Japanese. And what year was that? When did someone win the Olympics? 2013. 2013. It was seven years in advance. They were overwhelmed with people wanting to be volunteers. Overwhelmed. And, you know, when the ticket sales went on, domestic ticket sales, they couldn't even fulfill a tenth of them. The Japanese just loved the fact that the Olympics were going to be in Tokyo. Um, they weren't so keen on having them in October. We talked so much about, I mean, in uh, July, we, we talked so much about the, the COVID, you forget that it is really hot in, in Tokyo in July, August. It's so hot that the International Olympic Committee ordered them to move the marathon to Sapporo in the north and the long distance walking. Uh, so that's, that's a problem that the athletes are going to face that we've overlooked because of COVID. But as the COVID problem happened, the, you know, the Japanese government did not do a good job of preparing. You know, Japanese on, on the first part, they're used to wearing masks anyway, you know, against germs, against uh, uh, flu and so forth. So that wasn't a problem. And they, they did way better than we, you know, at one point, the United States was having more COVID deaths in one day than Japan had had since the beginning of the pandemic. They were doing social, they you tell them to social distance, well, social distance, wear masks, no problem. But then it got worse and worse, the new variants and, and, and so forth. And the Japanese, absolutely, the Japanese government did not prepare for vaccinations. And, you know, the Japanese people started going, what are you doing? You're bringing in people from 200 countries. Wait a minute. And so, and now we just had this case just recently. The first athletes to come in, normally athletes come from around the world early and they they do training camps in different parts of the host country. Uh, In this case, Japan. Most of the cities went, forget it, canceled. You can't come. We don't want you. But some went, we need the money you know, come and we want to be hosts anyway. And so the first team to go in was the Australian softball team. No problem. They went to the training camp. Then mid-June, a little bit past mid-June, nine people came in from Uganda, uh, athletes and their coaches. And 
they, you know, the Ugandan said, look, we tested these people back in Uganda. They're all negative. Don't worry about it. They got to the airport in Japan, in, in Tokyo, and one of them tested positive. The question, and he was immediately isolated into a, they've already set up in advance, COVID hotels. And then the other eight members had to, have, had to quarantine for two weeks. So the question is, what happened here? Did this guy get COVID on the airplane? Did the Ugandans lie about the negative tests they'd given their athletes? Or was their testing so incompetent that they didn't, you know, their test wasn't reliable? Well, you know, most of the athletes come to the Olympics, it's going to be okay. But if you're Japanese and you're going, what just happened? You know, we were told these, these people were safe and they're bringing COVID into our country. One country, the, the second country to come in. Uh-oh. So I think there's a great amount of nervousness. I read the latest protocol, um, which was issued by jointly by the International Olympic Committee and the uh, Japanese Organizing Committee. And they said, okay, we're going to have Japanese fans in the stadium. Not very many, but they'll be there. But if you read down, they also say, we retain the right in case of emergency to change all the rules. And that's where we stand right now. Isn't it true, Japanese, the fans are supposed to not be allowed to cheer as well? I'm not sure how that'll go over. Mm. Yeah, well, they've been doing that at baseball games. Is that right? Yeah. 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 So that gave them the the encouragement that they could pull it off at the Olympics, too. (laughs) Well, at at least in the the American media, there's still like whiffs of the question, is it even going to happen? Are the, are the Olympics actually going to happen? They really want it to happen, period. Mm-hmm. And it's only this, this one paragraph in that latest press release that makes you go, uh-oh. In other words, if, for example, um, a bunch of the athletes start arriving at the Narita airport in Tokyo in huge numbers, and large numbers of them are testing positive, then you might see them go, wait a minute. But okay. at this point, I, I, I think, you know, we talk about how, you know, the money and, you know, the sponsors are involved in the broadcasters. But there, there is another thing, which is the athlete. You know, Thomas Bach, who is the president of the International Olympic Committee, is an Olympic champion in fencing. He's the first Olympic champion to be president of the International Olympic Committee. Mm-hmm. And I believe he feels strongly that these athletes deserve to compete, even if there's no audience. Right. Uh, so yes, the money's a big deal, but there is that too. These athletes have worked hard. And as we said earlier, 73% of them will never get another chance. Yeah. Are they, I know countries vary so much in terms of their access to, to vaccines, but that, that would seem the easiest way to create a safe atmosphere for the athletes, you know, in terms of just having everybody be vaccinated. Yes. From your mouth into everybody's ears, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, like, like the, the international Olympic committee, they released a statement. Don't worry. Uh, 80% of the athletes in the Olympic village will be va- will have been vaccinated. Hmm. 
that's not 100%. That's right. And they tried to set up, um, like in Qatar and, and one other place, places where, where national teams could send their athletes to be vaccinated, even if vac- vaccines were not available in their own country. Well, wait a minute. Who's going to pay? For, first of all, who's going to pay for that? Right. Second of all, as we all know, with most of the vaccines, you have to have two of them and wait two weeks before it's fully effective. Right. We're getting on pretty late now for that. And so, yeah, that would have been a good idea, but it didn't happen. That's interesting how human beings work. <laughs> hey, hey, it's really absolutely fascinating in the depth, the breadth, the intimacy of your knowledge and the stories that you shared with this is really It's meaningful, and I just got to say, it makes me appreciate the Olympics a a lot more, and I thank you for for your work. I really do. I thank you from the bottom of my heart. I just loved, I loved watching all sports uh, for the Olympics, like curling and the weird sports that you never see, you know, it's just. You know that uh, cross country was in the Olympics in the 1920s. Really? Yeah. Why did and they take it out? Because it's the purest of all sports, if you ask me. <laughs> they, well, there was a bad incident, uh, was it in 24, where it was held in extreme heat. Oh. And they, they weren't prepared to have water stations and so forth back then. And it made a bad impression and they removed it from the program. Mm. Now you could put it back. It would be wonderful. Yeah. Why not? It's such a great sport. Well, say hello to the south of France for us. And uh, we're we're very grateful for your time. And and we'll we'll be watching the Olympics along with you with interest. And you have given us a lot of a lot of ways to just appreciate and celebrate the amazing accomplishment that it is to to actually have an Olympics. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So especially feels like a gift right now with COVID to actually try to do it. Yeah, I think, you know, even though it's for the athletes, a lot of people who get it done are the other people (laughs) behind the scenes. Yes. Yes. Well, all the best to you. Thank you so much, David. Thank Thank you you. very much. All the best to you. So our listeners may remember that we interviewed an outstanding young woman who was training for the Olympics, Annie Rodenfels. And Annie ran for my alma mater, Center College, which is a Division Three school. And it's an unlikely story that Annie turned pro after her college career and actually uh, was a viable uh, candidate for the Olympic team. Um, then the Olympics got postponed and we wanted to check back in with Annie now that the trials were getting closer um, and John was able to catch her and have um, a, a few minutes to hear how she's doing. Yeah, my last six months have been pretty crazy um, after not racing for like probably about a full year almost. I picked back up. Um, I ran a 5K on the track and ran a 10 second PR in December. And then kind of a down period, um, we decided not to do indoor at all due to COVID and just, I mean, that was January, things were still spreading and um, being an indoor environment. 
close to other people, then it seemed very safe. Um, and so we wanted to safeguard our lungs from COVID and be courteous to other people. So we took off indoor and then came back out with outdoor and, um, it's been pretty good. It hasn't been everything that I've wanted out of the season, but it's definitely been, um, a season that I would have been very pleased with a year or even two years ago. So I feel like there's not much more you can ask for. So when the time trials are out in Oregon and yep. and how many people will be in that first race? Oh gosh. Um, so I believe, I think it's like, it's probably somewhere closer to 40 now, wow. probably like 30. I think it was 34 before D1. It's probably more like 37, 38, 39. Um, but it'll be broken up into, I'm not even sure either two, maybe three heats that large of a field, they could technically do three. Um, and so then the goal would be to qualify from my heat to the final. And I mean that how many people from each heat that qualifies will depend on if there's two or three heats. I think they usually take about 14 people to the final, maybe into the final. So from the prelim to the finals, you'd have four days in between. Yeah. And at, yep. at Oregon in a hotel, trying to get training in and everything and your diet and everything on the side while you're, while you're traveling. Yep. Yeah. I mean, there's a community college that they like set aside for people to train on. You have to have credentials to get into. Okay. Um. Yeah. It's very, it's pretty strict the way that they like manage everything. Like, you have to get COVID tested, I believe, every two days, even if you're vaccinated. Um, so they're trying to be really careful. You have to have credentials to get into the track. You can only have one coach come with you at the actual event like mm-hmm. and stand in a certain area. For example, I have two coaches, so I had to just choose one of them, and the other one just is going to sit in the stands and watch. There's a lot more that goes into it than just uh, showing up for a high school track meet or yeah. a college uh, track yes. meet right now. Have you raced against many of the people that you'll be competing against there? Technically, yes. At the last U.S. championships, um, I guess I raced in the prelim against probably about half the field. Um, some of the other girls I have raced against, I wouldn't say I've raced against a lot of them very often, though. Annie, good luck to you. Our family will be praying for you and rooting for you and we'll be watching it every second of it if we can yeah thanks for following i appreciate it olympic hopeful annie rodenfels is a friend of ours and we're really grateful that um, she gave us some time for john to check in with her before the trials and we just wanted to quickly report back that um Annie did not qualify for the Olympic team. She knew going in that she had a back injury. It was going to be a painful race. It was going to be a tough race, but she ran it just amazingly well. She ran it with so much courage and stamina and just determination. She is an amazing athlete who's accomplished amazing things. And any elite athlete knows the heartbreak um, when you run that race and it didn't turn out the way you wanted it to. Um, And Annie's determined to keep working. We know that there are so many Olympic hopefuls out there, just like Annie, who um, are coming home from the trials um, without the result that they were hoping for. And from our interview with David, we know that, that most people who even make it to the Olympics 
um, you know, don't get a medal. Don't, don't ever, we never even know their names. And it's just an amazing part of sport um, that there is such thrill and such joy and such deep meaning in, um, in the determination of the human will and the amazing things the human body can do when we put our minds and hearts to it. You've been listening to Going Deep, sports in the 21st century from the studios of Blue Ridge Public Radio, NPR for Western North Carolina. Tell us what you think of the show by emailing us at goingdeep at bpr.org. And make sure you like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Shoops Going Deep.